All right, so this is um, allegedly our last day on the Iliad, and um, luckily we're going to continue with Homer, so there are issues that we haven't even touched on yet that, um, or barely touched on, like Homeric epithets. Remember we talked a week ago about why um, um, Paris is treated like Sir Robin, bravely he beat a bold retreat. Um, <laughs> the the um, unstained and irreproachable Paris behaved shamefully. Um, so that's a question that we have, we have to get to. Um, there are a lot of things uh, to talk about today, but what um, I want, and I, I want to sort of go over them quickly, but these are issues, again, that will come up in um, the Odyssey as well. So it's not like this is it. Um, one of the things we talked about are, is um, the relationship of guest friendship, um, the relationship that um, made it the case that um, enemies might exchange armor or that enemies might decide not to fight against each other because they have that relationship of guest friendship. And um, we talked about this in, in the broader terms of the laws of hospitality, where the laws of hospitality um, are one major, major um, uh, manifestation of the laws of hospitality. Can you hold it? Can you hold the question? Um, do hold it, but but because um, there really there's there's a bunch of stuff I need to say. Um, but one major manifestation of the laws of hospitality is the treatment of ambassadors. Um, that's always um, the case. It's still the case now that ambassadors from the opposing side are given hospitality and safe conduct. Um, the very idea of a safe conduct for an enemy is, um, even in contemporary times, is an aspect of the laws of hospitality, which is that you do not harm guests. Um, and it's um, um, a, a major uh, rule that you don't harm guests. Um, the one way that that comes out in the Iliad is that um, one of the epithets for Zeus is that Zeus is, or two of the epithet, epithets for Zeus are Zeus, who is god of the heralds, is one epithet. We talked um, about different aspects of Zeus last time. So one of them is that Zeus is god of the heralds. Um, that is that Zeus protects heralds where what among the things that heralds do is they act as go-betweens to the other army. They are messengers and the messengers are protected and they are sacred to Zeus. So Zeus is the god of messengers. Obviously um, Hermes is the messenger god, but that's a different thing. The messenger god and the god of heralds, god of messengers, well, it's Zeus of the heralds. Um, Zeus protects messengers. Zeus protects heralds. They are sacred to him. And also, a couple of times, you get the phrase Zeus, god of the guests. In Greek, it's Zeus Zenon, where we get our word xenophobia is fear of foreigners. But Zenon, the Greek word xenos, um, means guest or foreigner, um, because those two things actually mean the same thing. Um, again, in the Bible, it's you were strangers in the land of Egypt. To be a stranger, it also means to be a guest. Um, so Zeus himself, in one of his um, 
deepest aspects is the God of hospitality, the God who requires following the law of hospitality. Um, and Homer, one of the things, we'll see this um, again, and we didn't have enough time quite to talk about this here. We'll see this again in the Odyssey. One of the things that Homer is doing in this poem is um, telling you, giving you the information that you need to understand what happens later on in the poem. That is to say, Homer is the opposite of a naive poet. He's probably um, matches Shakespeare in the sophistication of his narrative um, uh, architecture and in the way things are set up in order to make you understand what the rules of the world that this, that this story um, occurs in, what those rules are. And so one reason, just to give you a very quick example, one reason that you have the embassy to Achilles where he turns down what Agamemnon um, offers him is so that you get some sense of what the proper way to, even in anger, what the proper way to receive ambassadors is. Um, and Homer wants you to learn that. Homer isn't only composing for people who know this culture and know these rules. He's actually composing for people um, who are learning the culture and learning the rules. One of the things that the oral poems do, that the Iliad and the Odyssey do, is they teach the rules. Um, they teach the rules through il illustration and through storytelling. Um, this idea of hospitality is connected to the idea of anger. Um, what Agamemnon does is he violates a law that is related to the law of hospitality by taking a gift back, by saying, I am demanding back from you what I gave you. And that for um, Achilles is an extreme violation of a code of hospitality and a code of honor having to do with holding the person, holding the friend, let's say, um, at, as a <coughs> sacred figure. Friendship is sacred, alliance is sacred, um, even friendship with those on the other side is sacred. That's where the law of hospitality comes from. And that's what Agamemnon violates. And, and um, anger, the first word of the Iliad, anger, is the psychological state that this poem is going to examine and examine in very, very great detail. Now, the thing about anger is, again, going back, and I'm, I'm going to um, not, not take us there, but um, just remind you of this, going back to the embassy of Achilles, to Achilles, um, what Nestor and Phoenix say to him, we started talking about this last time, is um, it's anger is um, very, very hard to put aside because what anger is always about, and this is true throughout the Iliad, whenever anyone gets angry in the Iliad, that anger comes out of a sense that they've been dissed, that they've been disrespected. And again, the respect that people feel that they're owed is respect 
due to their status as guests or strangers or friends. All those things are in one kind of category, due to their status as fully and equally human. Um, that's the respect that all humans feel they're entitled to, or at least all heroes feel that they're entitled to, as long as they don't violate those rules, they feel that they too are entitled to those rules. Anger comes out of a sense of injustice, a sense that that respect has been violated. Um, the violation of that respect means that anger is a kind of appeal to the judgment of others. And essentially that appeal is the fact that I'm angry shows that I've been treated unfairly, shows that these laws have been violated. Just think about, in general, the psychology of sulking, because the Iliad is, it's too easy to say that Achilles sulks. He does sulk, but this is um, sulking as sublime, not sulking as um, petty. Um, the psychology of sulking, when somebody sulks, is to say, I am essentially showing the world that I've been treated unfairly. And the way I'm making it clear that I've been treated unfairly is that I know that people think I'm behaving badly by sulking, but the unfairness is such that I am willing to accept that people will think I'm behaving badly. Um, that's what sulking is. That is, um, if someone says, you're just sulking and you're being a jerk, the answer of someone who's genuinely sulking is, yeah, I am being a jerk. That's what I've been pushed to, is to being a jerk. I didn't want to be a jerk, but justice requires me to do injustice to myself because the other thing that I could do, which is to be a bigger person and put it aside and stop sulking, would be a bigger injustice done to myself. People might respect me more, but the very fact that I've been disrespected makes me now do something to show that I've been disrespected even though I get disrespected for showing it. That's the paradox of the emotion of anger, especially when it takes the form of, of um, rejection, of repudiation. Rejection and repudiation are a kind of acceptance of the fact that people are going to look down on you for what you've done. Um, and you're partly showing that what's been done to you is sufficiently wrong that you are going to suck up the fact that people are looking down on you. You're going to say, tough, look down on me if you want, but there's no way that I'm simply going to um, put this aside. No way at all. So anger is a kind of um, <coughs> appeal to others that takes the form of saying, I don't care anymore whether you think that I shouldn't be angry. The interesting communication that anger makes 
the interesting thing that anger is saying is um, if you grant that I have a right to be angry, then you will see that he was wrong and I was right. But if you don't grant that I have a right to be angry, if you're telling me I'm the one who should get over my anger, then what you're not seeing is that, is that I did have a right to be angry, and I'm going to prove that I had a right to be angry by doing something, by showing you how I've been put in a position where my only option is to be disrespected. Disrespected for being angry or disrespected for not being angry. Again, think about, as Homer is thinking about um, his actual experience, think about your actual experience of anger, where the actual experience is a kind of broadcast of the fact that you've been put in a position which is unfair, put in a position in which whatever you do, the outcome will be unfair. Whether you continue to be angry and people look down on you for being angry, or whether you put your anger aside and rise above it, in both cases, something unfair will have happened. And anger then is a kind of assertion, a kind of expression of the fact that the situation is unfair. And Homer is, is quite explicit about that when Achilles says, it's true that I would show myself more glorious if I put away my anger towards Agamemnon. It's true that I would show myself an even greater hero than I am if I were able to put away my anger for Agamemnon. But I won't do it because I'm so angry at him. So anger feeds on itself, not in the sense that um, you get angry and then you're angry over the fact that you're angry. Um, it doesn't feed on itself the way panic does, for example. But anger feeds on itself because the very fact that people think you shouldn't be angry is what anger is countering. The very fact that it would be smarter not to be angry, anger expresses your acknowledgment but rejection <coughs> of the truth of that. It may be true that I should put this aside. And the fact that I won't should show you just how unfair this was. It may be true that I should put away my tears and just do the right thing. But notice that I know that that could be true, and yet I still won't do it. It's not that I'm dumb and don't realize that. I do realize it. And the fact that I realize it and won't do it, that should show you how angry I am, which should show you how unfairly I've been treated, which should show you how unjust the situation is. Now, that idea that anger is, um, comes ultimately for everyone, if it's anger, it comes out of a sense of injustice, raises the question then, so what is justice? Um, a hard question, one that Plato and Milton and various other people will um, discuss. But um, the narrower way of asking that question is to say, in what situations do you have a right to demand justice? What does it mean 
if you think that justice is something that you're entitled to. And um, the idea is essentially if um, a rock falls on you while you're hiking or a tree like that um, poor woman in Central Park, although that's an interesting, um, uh, that's an interesting illustration. Um, if some natural disaster happens to you, stuff happens. Um, injustice occurs when someone treats you in a way that they had a choice about and they didn't show you respect, where the respect is something like the respect that you're due because you are in human society with them. Because to be a human being means that you both give and get respect from other human beings. So anger throughout the Iliad, anger is 90% of the time between people on the same side. That is, there's an Achaean society and a Trojan society. And the word anger appears practically on every page or every other page of the Iliad. But it certainly appears on every page or every other page of those scenes in which the Trojans are talking to each other or the Achaeans are talking to each other. That's where anger is always rising up, is in, um, is in tension and dissension within a social group within a society that are ruled by and governed by the same laws, within a society in which the people are supposedly working together. So justice is an appeal to being to a kind of even-handed treatment within a social group. And what gets Achilles so angry at Agamemnon is that Agamemnon is his king, the king of the, um, or the leader of the Achaeans, the greatest of the Argive kings, um, and Agamemnon treats him unfairly. Um, the last great scene of anger in the Iliad is at the funeral games for Patroclus, where Menelaus gets so angry because he thinks that he should have won, um, or at least come in second in the chariot race. Um, and his anger is tremendous because, again, here is something which is entirely a game, entirely um, conventional. It's not about fighting or war, but what it is is a kind of, of stylization of fighting and war. The games are games of military um, prowess and military skill, but they're not actually military. Um, they're play versions of that. And yet Menelaus gets furious. And furious within a social situation which is extremely rule governed, which actually has a referee watching um, and deciding who the winner is and who's played fairly and who hasn't, who hasn't. And yet there again you have this tremendous scene of anger and then of reconciliation. It's almost as though the funeral games, and there's a lot of stuff that um, the funeral games are doing, but it's almost as though the funeral games is a kind of um, play-acting version of the Iliad 
itself of the anger of Achilles. You get the, the anger of Menelaus in the chariot race. Um, Hector gets angry at his brothers um, when he doesn't agree with their advice. Anger is always something that rises up in a situation where you feel that someone who owes you justice is not treating you justly. So that then raises the question, um, who owes you justice? Um, what does it mean to be owed justice? And obviously, those who you are in the same social group with um, owe you justice, because justice is essentially what keeps a social group viable. Um, what happens, though, between enemies? What kind of justice do enemies owe each other? And this is a question that comes up most deeply and most profoundly in the questions of supplication and sanctuary. Um, supplication and sanctuary, both in the Iliad and the Odyssey and throughout ancient literature, we're not doing Agamemnon, but they're extremely important. I mean, the Agamemnon. We're not doing Aeschylus's play Agamemnon. But these are extremely important questions in the Greek tragedies. Um, the Agamemnon, maybe most of all, um, or the Oresteia trilogy, maybe most of all. But, the, but one question is, so what happens if an enemy supplicates you, if an enemy um, if you've defeated an enemy and an enemy embraces you, your knees, which is, which is a scene that happens several times in the Iliad, and an enemy embraces your knees and asks for mercy. And the question is, do you treat that enemy like an animal or like a human? The laws of hospitality are laws which say that the supplicant is sacred, that if someone is a supplicant to you, you don't kill them. They have ceased trying to kill you. And now there's a law, but not an unbreakable one. Um, otherwise, it wouldn't be real supplication. But there's a, a kind of moral pressure on the person supplicated to accept the supplication. Um, and it's an index of a character's rage whether they, whether that character will treat the supplicant as a human being or not. And in the Iliad, most of the time not in the days of fighting that we see, but sometimes yes. But the question of supplication is a question um, which brings to its most stark and elemental form the the human relationship between the supplicant and the victor. Um, that also is a social relationship. It's not now a social relationship within one society, the society of the Argives or the society of the Trojans, but between those two societies. But of course, remember that what gets the whole Trojan War started is Paris's violation of the laws of hospitality. He was Menelaus's guest. And he kidnaps Menelaus's wife. So the whole shebang 
begins with a violation of the laws of hospitality. And the question then arises, notice this has the same structure as the question of anger. The question then arises, the violation of the laws of hospitality, how do you, re, how do you um, engage in retribution for the violation of the laws of hospitality? And one answer is you are now entitled to violate them yourself. That is, if Menelaus has, if Menelaus's wife is stolen by his guest, then there is no cause for Menelaus to treat any Trojan according to the laws of hospitality. No, no requirement for Menelaus to show mercy to the violators of those laws. That is to say, Paris. The other possibility is to say, no, you're the one who violated them. I didn't, and I won't. And therefore, to treat the enemy as though they're human. But the general, or the most elemental way of putting this question is to say, do you treat enemies as human beings or not? Um, that's the most, that's the, that's the final question about how you treat strangers and how you treat um, guests. One place that it comes up, I, Homer puts all this in place in the course of 20 books of the Iliad. Um, I'm sort of trying to do it rapidly, but one place that it comes up is one mode of sanctuary is that of the manslaughterer. So if someone kills someone else by accident, you can pay a blood price for that, which is something that Homer makes sure we realize, um, that you can pay a, pay a blood price for the fact that you've accidentally killed someone's son or brother or father. Um, and by paying that blood price, what you're showing is that you regard what you've done as a violation of how things should be, even if it was accidental. You regard what you've done as a violation of how things should be, and you acknowledge that violation by paying gifts or paying a ransom. Paying ransom, paying the blood price, um, all those things are still connected to this general rubric, or still fall under this general rubric. The other thing that you can do if you have committed manslaughter is find sanctuary elsewhere. You can leave, and by leaving you acknowledge that you're wrong, and you can go to another place and seek sanctuary. How? Through what is owed to strangers seeking sanctuary. Strangers are always supposed to be granted sanctuary. They, are, they aren't always, but they're supposed to be always granted sanctuary. And what Homer does, this is um, page 452 um, in the amazing scene where um, Achilleus kills, uh, excuse me, dreams of the killed um, Patroclus has um, his image comes to him. Um, this is book uh, 23, start at um, around, uh, it's worth starting at line 54 of book 23, page 451 of Lattimore. Um, so he spoke and they listened well to him and obeyed him. Um, that is to uh, Achilles describing the funeral rites for Patroclus. And in speed and haste they got the dinner ready, and each man feasted, nor was any man's hunger denied a fair portion. 
So after the funeral, they eat. But when they had put aside their desire for eating and drinking, they went away to sleep, each man into his own shelter. But along the beach of the thunderous sea, the son of Peleus lay down, groaning heavily among the Myrmidon numbers in a clear place where the waves washed over the beach. And at that time, sleep caught him and was drifted sweetly about him, washing the sorrows out of his mind, for his shining limbs were grown weary indeed from running in chase of Hector toward windy Ilion. And there appeared to him the ghost of unhappy Patroclus, all in his likeness for stature, <coughs> and the lovely eyes and voice, and wore such clothing as Patroclus had worn on his body. The ghost came and stood over his head and spoke a word to him, You sleep, Achilleus, you have forgotten me. But you were not careless of me when I lived, but only in death. Bury me as quickly as may be. Let me pass through the gates of Hades, the souls the images of dead men hold me at a distance and will not let me cross the river and mingle among them. But I wander as I am by Hades' house of the wide gates, and I call upon you in sorrow. Give me your hand. No longer shall I come back from death. Once you give me my right of burning, no longer shall you and I alive sit apart from our other beloved companions and make our plans, since the bitter destiny that was given me when I was born has opened its jaws to take me. And you, Achilleus, like the gods, have your own destiny to be killed under the wall of the prospering Trojans. There is one more thing I will say and ask of you if you will obey me. Do not have my bones laid apart from yours, Achilleus, but with them. Just as we grew up together in your house when Menoitius brought me here, brought me there from Apuos when I was little and into your house, by reason of a baneful manslaying on that day when I killed the son um, of Amphidamas. I was a child only nor intended it, but was angered over a dice game. There the writer Peleus took me into his own house and brought me carefully up and named me to be your henchman. Therefore let one single vessel, the golden two-handled urn the lady your mother gave you, hold both our ashes. So notice that we haven't learned until now how it was that Achilleus and Patroclus became friends. But it turned out that it started with anger. Patroclus, as a youth, was angry over someone he thought was cheating in a game. Were they cheating or not? We don't know. Um, in a sense, it doesn't matter. What matters is that Patroclus thought he was cheating. His response was anger. Anger, again, to summarize, is a way of asserting that social justice, or the justice that makes societies fair, was violated, an assertion that takes the form of saying, I am going to explicitly and openly violate social norms as a way of protesting the unexplicit, sneaky, backhanded way someone else violated social norms. You think it's OK to violate social norms? I'll show you. So Patroclus becomes angry. The result is he escalates things and kills someone for cheating at dice. Presumably, if it's manslaughter, he didn't mean to kill them, but only to hurt them. They got into a fight, and the son of Amphidamas dies. And now Patroclus acknowledges that what he did was unjust. He therefore justly 
acknowledges the injustice of what he's done by leaving the society and by supplicating for sanctuary elsewhere. He goes from being the wronged party to the supplicating party, where the supplicant is to supplicate is to acknowledge that justice does not lie in your hands, but in the hands of another. So supplication and anger are opposites to each other, or they're supplementary, <laughs> complementary to each other. We don't want to confuse it with supplementary. Um, supplication and anger are complements to each other. To be angry is to say that people should be supplicating you, and you have no necessity of accepting their supplication. To be a supplicant is to acknowledge that the other person has rights over you, including the right of anger, where what anger means is a willingness to violate social norms and even a willingness to act unjustly out of a sense that justice has already been violated and only two wrongs can make a right. Only through acting angrily, therefore unjustly, can you hope to um, see justice done. So anger is a kind of counter-injustice to which both um, um, asserts and attempts to balance the injustice that it complains about. Supplication is what anger seeks from the other person, an acknowledgment that the anger that looks unjust actually is just in the long run. At any rate, notice that the scene with Patroclus is one where Homer has kept in reserve until this moment when Achilles dreams of him or of his image. It's a, actually a tricky passage, but dreams of his image. It is at this moment that Patroclus says, I was a manslaughterer. I came to your father as a supplicant. I was granted <coughs> sanctuary, but now you are forgetting me, which seems a somewhat unfair accusation. And yet, there's some truth to it, that the way Achilles remembers Patroclus is remembers the fact that he's forgetting him. He falls asleep, which he vowed he would not do. Anyhow, hang on to this moment and go back now to um, book 22, um, where Achilles and Hector finally meet. Um, and I want to say something about the scene in which they meet. Um, Achilles wins by cheating. Um, he doesn't know that he's cheating, but um, Hector believes that Deiphobos is with him and is helping him. Um, but in fact, who is it really? Athena. Athena, who is helping Achilles and who entraps Hector. Um, and so what Athena does when Achilles misses Hector with his spear, Athena restores the spear to Achilles. So Hector um, loses and is killed, but it doesn't feel quite fair. The battle doesn't feel quite fair. Um, and the unfairness of the battle has two or three different consequences 
that Homer wants for the story that he's telling. One consequence is that um, Achilles is essentially saying or embodying the idea that anger no longer demands fairness, that anger, again, is about the violation of norms which could require, if I'm angry, I no longer feel that I have to be fair. Um, why? Because I was treated unfairly. And um, I can express the fact that I was treated unfairly by no longer vowing to be fair myself. That's the two wrongs make a right theory, which is always what's behind anger. The two wrongs do make a right, or the only way to make a right is through two wrongs. Um, it has a narrative consequence, which is that we ourselves feel that Achilles, although his grief, his grief was great, we love Hector too. In fact, we probably love Hector more than Achilles. Um, that's one of the things that Achilles is accepting, is that when this story is told, we will be more on Hector's side than on Achilles' side when they come together. Um, the story is partly a story, and you'll see this a lot in the Odyssey, by the way. The story is partly a story about characters who know that these stories will be told about them. And what Achilles knows is that the story told about him will include his sulking and his viciousness towards Hector. And it's part of his anger to say, even if the story about me doesn't make me the hero, but makes Hector the hero, I'm so angry that I accept that as well. That's something, too, that is comprehended and included in his sulking. Now, for Homer, what the issue is, is what do we do with Achilles after this low point? which is his treatment of Hector. And that's what happens after the death of Hector, is the last movement of the Iliad, is the recuperation of Achilles, the bringing Achilles back to the situation where he's the last living, or he's the major living hero at the end of the Iliad. Now, look at, as I say, look at book 22. Um, and this is after Hector can no longer run or decides no longer to run around the walls of Troy in this situation of humiliation. Achilles chasing him around the walls of Troy, and he's been humiliated. But now he says at line 253, or line 251, I fled three times around the great city of Priam, and dared not stand to your onfall, but now my spirit in turn has driven me to stand and face you. I must take you now, or I must be taken. Come then, shall we swear before the gods, for these are the highest, who shall be witnesses and watch over our agreements. So now again, we have a situation of agreement of some sort that Hector is pursuing between Achilles and himself, between enemies. But the enemies here, the two major figures on both sides, the climactic battle in the Iliad, Hector is seeking 
an agreement before that battle. Brutal as you are, I will not defile you if Zeus grants to me that I can wear you out and take the life from you. So brutal as you are, that's an insult. Um, that is essentially what he's saying to Achilles is, you are someone who many people would think it would be okay to defile because of your um, uncontrollable violence. But I will still attempt to enter into an agreement with you that brutal as you are, I will not defile you if Zeus grants to me that I can wear you out and take the life from you. But after I have stripped your glorious armor, Achilleos, I will give your corpse back to the Achaeans. Do you likewise? Then, looking darkly at him, swift-footed Achilleos answered, Hector, argue me no agreements. I cannot forgive you. So what Achilleos is saying is, no, now I am angry at you. I cannot forgive you. What he had felt earlier and in a minor mode with respect to Agamemnon, now the final, most fundamental version of that anger is what he is addressing to Hector. But what he is essentially saying is, I refuse to accept you as a human equal as equal to me by virtue of the fact, not that we're both Argives, but by virtue of the fact that we're both humans. Why? Because I am angry at you. Why? Because of what you did to Patroclus. And so the fact that Achilleus is so angry at Hector means two things. It means, one, that he is refusing to treat Hector as someone worthy of justice, as someone whose agreement or truce or supplication even um, should be noticed, but two, that that refusal is itself a kind of acknowledgment that if he weren't so angry at Hector, that would be the relationship that they should have. Look at what he goes on to say. I cannot forgive you, as there are no trustworthy oaths between men and lions, nor wolves and lambs have spirit that can be brought to agreement, but forever these hold feelings of hate for each other. So there can be no love between you and me, nor shall there be oaths between us, but one or the other must fall before them to glut with his blood Ares the god who fights under the shield's guard. Remember every valor of yours. For now the need comes hardest upon you to be a spearman and a bold warrior. There shall be no more escape for you, but Pallas Athena will kill you soon by my spear. You will pay in a lump for all those sorrows of my companions you killed in your spear's fury. Um, so what he's saying here is Homer intends to be self-contradictory, which is to say that he is saying there's no way of anything but violence between you and me. We're like men and lions, or like dogs and wolves. I mean, excuse me, lambs and wolves. There can be no agreement whatever um, between us. We are natural enemies. But 
lions do not say to men, or men do not say to lions, we are natural enemies. There can be no agreement between us. The, this very speech, refusing an agreement between them, is a speech in anger at someone whom Achilles feels, who Achilles feels has violated this social norm, the norm even between enemies. And so his anger at Hector actually puts Hector in the same relationship to Achilles that Agamemnon is. That is, they both belong ultimately to the fundamental human species. They are strangers to each other or enemies um, or foreign to each other, but they still are human. And that is the most fundamental thing that Achilles is acknowledging by denying. It's like saying to someone, you don't understand what I'm, you, don't un you can't understand what I'm saying to you. Um, please understand that you can't understand what I'm saying to you. That's what Achilles <laughs> is saying. So he says, there can be no agreement. We hate each other. So pick up your spear and fight hard because you're in trouble. That is, he is not simply treating him as he would a lion. Now, one thing that Homer does to underline this later is that um, what Achilles says is there are no trustworthy oaths between men and lions. In that situation, he's imagining that he is the man and that Hector is an inhuman animal. Um, just kill him. He's an animal. Treat him like an animal, not like a human. But after he kills Hector, Homer has a simile, which we won't turn to now, where Achilles is described as like a lion who has just taken down its prey. Yeah. Speaking of the subject, it, I know it doesn't happen in the narrative, but isn't part of the story of the fall of Troy that <coughs> Paris eventually kills Achilles? Yes. By bow? Yes. Yep, because he's a coward. Um, and that's the whole point. Um, so, so the prediction... And the point of the book is that the death of Patroclus, the death of Achilles, and the death of Hector, those three things are connected. What is keeping Achilles alive is Hector's being alive. Um, the death of Hector is, the prophecy is Achilles will kill Hector and die soon afterwards. That prophecy is repeated again and again. That um, what Achilles is doing in the Trojan War, from, from the point of view of history and fate, is he is the person who will kill Hector. And he knows that that is his historical task or function in the story. So he knows that the death of Hector equals his own death, that after Hector dies, he won't live long. Thetis knows this. Patroclus knows this. The horse Xanthos knows this. Um, Hector knows it, that he, Patroclus, and Hector are all three of them very tightly chained together, bound together by fate. Um, and yeah, Paris is going to kill him. Then his son, Neoptolemus, this is all stuff that we will see in um, the Odyssey and the Aeneid. Um, but ultimately, it's his own son who will kill Priam um, in revenge for the death of his father. OK, go now to um, page 488. Um, this is Priam supplicating Achilles in book 24, and it's the last great scene 
um, in the Iliad. Um, so this is book 24, um, eh, st page 487. Um, start, um, uh, start at line 460. So this is um, Hermes who has brought Priam um, to um, Achilles's tents, and then he says to him, aged sir, I who came to you am a god immortal. Um, that's a surprise for Priam. He didn't realize that. He thought that Hermes was simply an argive. Aged sir, I who came to you am a god immortal. Hermes, my father sent me down to guide and go with you, but now I am going back again, and I will not go in before the eyes of Achilles, for it would make others angry for an immortal god so to face mortal men with favor. So there again, there's this question of anger comes up. And Hermes says, you have to face him without the god present. The question of anger now has finally to be resolved. And the favor favoring of the gods is something that will make those who are unfavored feel that injustice has occurred. So Hermes does not go in with Priam. But go you in yourself and clasp the knees of Pelion and entreat him in the name of his father, the name of his mother, of the lovely hair, and his child. And the irony there is I just indicated that his child is going to actually kill Priam in the fall of Troy. Homer knows this. Homer knows that we know this. It doesn't come in the Iliad, but it's um, one of the things that we know about the story. And in the name of his child, and so moved the spirit within him. So Hermes spoke and went away to the height of Olympus. But Priam vaulted down to the ground from behind the horses and left Adeos where he was, for he stayed behind, holding in hand the horses and mules. The old man went straight for the dwelling where Achilleus, the beloved of Zeus, was sitting. He found him inside, and his companions were sitting apart as two only, Automedon the hero and Alchemos, scion of Ares, were busy beside him. He had just now got through with his dinner. So Achilleus has eaten with eating and drinking, and the table still stood by. That's a setup. That is, it's not, um, you, Homer wants you to know that the table is still there with food and drink on it. Tall Priam came in unseen by the other men and stood close beside him and caught the knees of Achilleus in his arms and kissed the hands that were dangerous and manslaughtering and had killed so many of his sons. So that's an extremely intense scene, that now Priam, the supplicant, is kissing the hands that have killed his sons. And then a simile. As when dense disaster closes on one who has murdered a man in his own land, and he comes to the country of others, to a man of substance, and wonder seizes on those who behold him. So Achilleus wondered as he looked on Priam, a godlike man, and the rest of them wondered also and looked at each other. So what is this simile doing by way of, um, of you could say, telescoping? characters into each other, merging, morphing characters into each other. What characters are we reminded of? Why this simile here? Yeah, Ben. Definitely the 
Okay, we're minded of Cain and Abel and um, the wandering of Cain. You will see in um, um, in the Inferno that the um, one of the innermost regions of hell is called Cain, named after Cain. Um, what are we reminded of in the Iliad, Julian? Um, I was going to say uh, the the story we just heard about Patroclus coming. Yes. Yes, so the story that Pat, the last time we hear Patroclus, he says, I came to you, to your father for sanctuary because of a manslaughter I'd committed out of anger. Now here is Priam, and the simile says, people are amazed when a manslaughterer comes as a supplicant for sanctuary. And Priam now is in the same position that Patroclus was, seeking sanctuary in the simile. He's a supplicant like Patroclus, and in the simile a supplicant as though, like Patroclus, he had committed manslaughter. And then wonder seizes on those who behold him, so Achilleus wondered as he looked on Priam. So Achilleus sees in Priam the same, feels the same wonder seeing him as his father would have seen, seeing Patroclus. So here we have Priam and Patroclus are put together. But of course, Patroclus is also about to remind Achilles of his own father. So Achilleus wondered as he looked on Priam, a godlike man, and the rest of them wondered also and looked at each other. But now Priam spoke to him in the words of a, in the words of a suppliant, Achilleus, like the gods, remember your father, one who is of years like mine, and on the door sill of sorrowful old age, and they who dwell nearby encompass him and afflict him, nor is there any to defend him against the wrath of destruction. Yet surely he, when he hears of you and that you are still living, is gladdened within his heart, and all his days he is hopeful that he will see his beloved son come home from the Troad. But for me, my destiny was evil. And he describes all his lost children. And then at line 503, honor them, the gods, Achilleus, and take pity upon me, remembering your father. Yet I am still more pitiful. I have gone through what no other mortal on earth has gone through. I put my lips to the hands of the man who has killed my children. That's what Priam has done. So he spoke and stirred in the other a passion of grieving for his own father. Now notice the amazing thing that's happened here is that, is that Priam says, um, your father still has hopes of seeing you, but I have no hopes of seeing my own son again. You may see your father again. I will never see Hector again. And the result is that Achilles realizes, no, this is how my father will feel when I am dead. My father will never see me again. I know that. So he stirred in Achilleus a passion of grieving for his own father. So Priam's grief for Hector causes, elicits grief in Achilles for his own father because his father will grieve for him, Achilles, as Priam is grieving for Hector now. Hang on to that scene. That's what Homer loves the moment where you become a figure in a story that is sad, and you're not sad about your own fate, 
but you are sad about the fate of those who will grieve for you. Odysseus, as you will see in the Odyssey, hears a singer like Homer, a blind singer, tell the story of the fall of Troy and tell the story of Odysseus, and he weeps at the story, not for himself, but because it's a story. So he took the old man's hand and pushed him gently away, and the two remembered as Priam sat huddled at the feet of Achilleus and wept close for manslaughtering Hector, and Achilleus wept now for his own father, now again for Patroclus. And um, then Achilles speaks, and just go to line 525, such is the way the gods spun life for unfortunate mortals, that we live in unhappiness, but the gods themselves have no sorrows. So suddenly what happens here is that Achilleus realizes that the injustice of human life is ultimately what it means to be human, and the gods themselves are responsible and careless over the injustice that happens to humans. There's a sudden realization here in this bonding of the most intense guest friendship that can be, the killer of the man's son taking the man in as a guest and showing him pity and compassion and feeling pity and compassion. That's what humans have that gods don't. The gods do not give justice in the world of the Iliad. The gods are unjust. The gods cheat. The gods decide things arbitrarily. The gods only care about peace in the Olympian home. It's the humans, ultimately, who have to treat each other according to the laws of hospitality. One last thing. Um, there, there are technical issues we'll talk about, but one last thing here is um, that go to line 601. Um, Achilles agrees to give the body back. And then he has the amazing line at line 601, now you and I must remember our supper. Um, that seems like a throwaway, but it may be the climactic line in this section of the book. They have grieved together, and now they will eat together. And remember, Achilles has already eaten, and Priam has not eaten since the death of Hector, as Achilles refused to eat after the death of Patroclus. But the moment when they eat together, return to human life, remember to eat. You and I must remember our supper. Come, line 618, come then. We also, aged, magnificent sir, must remember to eat. And afterwards, you may take your beloved son back to Ilion and mourn for him, and he will be much lamented. Um, that moment, we are humans. We need food. We will die, but we must remember to eat together. Ultimately, the shift in this poem is away from Greeks versus Trojans and the anger of the Greeks at, at the Trojans and at each other and so on to the difference between the gods and the mortals. And to be immortal is to experience sorrow inevitably. It's unjust, but it's universal injustice. It's all our woe, again, to quote Milton. OK, first six books of the Odyssey. See you Friday.